Okay, so listen, at 23, 23 years old, just imagine I had a good transition. At 23 years old, um, I applied for a pastoral position with a college ministry, and they asked, as a part of their, uh, their application process, for a testimony, um, which I, I, I think I knew what that, that was, um, but I'd never really done something like that. And so this is the first time I can remember really thinking through how God had led me to the point where I was at. And here's what I submitted. Would you um, throw that up, Ashley? Uh, if you got it, the, the, there's a, this one here. Nobody can read this, um, so I'll tell you what it is. Um, this is a giant list of names. Uh, it says, My Faith Journey, the abridged and more important edition. And it's this giant list of names, and it says, To be continued at the bottom, dot, dot, dot. Um, anyway, this, this wasn't what they were looking for. Uh, but, but because I, was, I think I did a good job with the application, I actually wrote a story as well. Um, but I told them that this was probably more truthful than the prose. And I realized, literally, as I was writing out these names, I started to kind of go chronologically uh, through things, um, that God had been at work in my life through so many people. I didn't actually just uh, spend time in my room one night with the Bible by myself and had this sort of divine epiphany, like clouds part, a giant angel shows up, and I get freaked out. Not, nothing like this happened. Like, it's just all of these people through whom God worked that my experience as a Christian— my life in Christ was a communal work. I had not done it alone, and even the people on this list surprised me. So I've got three ex-girlfriends on this list. I don't know what that says about me. Um, uh, but hey, uh, a friend that ditched me for, for something uh, dumb. Um, my, I got a young life leader on here who, who died at 24 years old uh, when I didn't really understand what that was about. There's one guy on this list. I don't even know who he is. Where is he? Uh, Joshua Warner. If anybody knows a Joshua Warner from Seattle, I'd like to remember why he was so significant to me in my life. I don't remember who it is. Uh, and today I had this really cool moment. There's a guy on here named Paul Rutherford, and I've talked about C.S. Lewis is on here because we were tight uh, for a while. Um, uh, there's a guy named Paul Rutherford who I have told this story about this guy named Paul, and I've said word for word, I wish I could remember his last name because I would love to send him a message and say, dude, you changed my life, and I don't think you even know. Because when I was in your small group Bible study, I didn't give two cents about anything. And I'm quite sure, I am quite sure that Paul, who invested all of this time and quite a bit of money, because if you know the story, this is a guy who would fly across the country to meet with me for my small group and then fly back out afterwards because he believed that your yes should be yes and your no should be no. And I remember thinking this is weird and the only reason I'm going to this Bible study is because Paul's freaking flying into town from Chicago. That's, I remember like being so mad at this and wishing I didn't sign up for these commitments. And I have no doubt Paul uh, was like, that was a waste of a year. And, I, and anyway, I was looking for this test, this application. So on my computer, I actually have my application for my very first sort of job at a college. And, and this was one of the pages. And I, I scrolled down the list and I went, oh, Rutherford! And I found him on Facebook and messaged him today. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so excited to talk to him. I can't wait to tell him later today. Anyway, this, this is... Uh, this, this was my testimony up to that point, this communal thing. And after I typed this out and I looked at it, and it was so surprising for me just how much each and every contour of my life and my faith was shaped by others. Uh, but, but listen, okay, for most people throughout the world and throughout history, I, I don't think this would be surprising that other people have been so formative in all of our faith experience or religious experiences or whatever. But for me, growing up in the individualistic West— a child of a culture lifting up the private self as the greatest cultural cherished sort of good, the idea that I couldn't divorce um, a single life-changing moment from my community was shocking. I couldn't go back to any single sort of big epiphany or realization about God and, and, and think, I did this myself. Just me and the Lord hanging out. 
That's it. And this was particularly true of my faith, y'all. Not every change, but particularly true of my faith. Let me, let me pray, and we'll get, we'll get into this stuff. Father, um, would you help me to speak um, with honor and dignity and truth about your church, your bride, um, to be kind to those of us here in this room, um, to be helpful. May the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts and minds be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, so do y'all know what Google Ngram is? It, I'm assuming at this point it's a pretty common tool for like research for papers. It looks kind of fun for a minute. Uh, if you don't know, whatever, okay. Uh, Google um, has been at work digitizing everything in print, everything in print, um, ever. Uh, and the Ngram, they're, they're, they've worked their way, at least in English, from anything starting in the year 1800 all the way up to, I think, 2008. They've got everything that's ever been printed in English digitized. Um, <coughs> anyway, maybe it's later than that. But, and, and the Ngram essentially combs their, their print database and reports the usage of a particular word or phrase over time. So, for example, would you look at this first one? Here's a Google Ngram for the word finna. Dead serious. Do you know that 1954, the word finna was used more than any other time in history? Suckers, you hipsters. Uh, this might surprise you. But for the purposes of our time tonight, it's actually a pretty intense uh, history to the word. But in any case, for our purposes, I'm more interested in this next one. Uh, there's got some three different lines on it. Okay, great. So you might not be able to read this. It goes from about 1800 to 2008. The top one here, the, the lightest line, says relationship with God. The red line says personal relationship. And the blue line, which doesn't look like much, but, but it's actually a crazy incline just compared to the other ones, that says personal relationship with God. Uh, it means God, uh, sort of off to the side. That's what that says. Okay, so these are the three lines. This is the kind of language, these three words, that, the phrases that I searched for, okay? This is the kind of language that people used when they were introducing me to Christianity. Does it sound familiar to you? There was a ton about silent prayer, private devotions, praying in my heart, uh, pr personal Bible reading, Everything, in one way or another, everything seemed to be about this intensely individualistic experience. Hyper-personal. Everything. And so it's not surprising for me, given my experience with religious folk, um, when I see that after being almost non-existent before the 1800s, the phrases personal relationship with God or personal relationship with Jesus or Jesus Christ have taken center stage in our religious culture. Listen, between the years 1940 and 2008... Pretty, that's just because that's up to where it is. I, it may actually be on the decline now, for all I know. But, but between 1940 and 2008, some version of this phrase, personal relationship with God, has seen an increase in use of 1,500%. 1,500%. So, so it's, it's become so common, even after it wasn't used at all in English before the 1800s, um, I bet you if you grabbed almost any pam Christian pamphlet, like tract or something like that, or you read any best-selling Christian book today, the phrase personal relationship will be used to describe Christianity. Anyone. After almost never being used prior to 1940, and if you want to talk about theories as to the rise of this language, I would love to geek out with you over that. Uh, interestingly enough, geek out as a phrase had a weird peak in 1810. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> So listen, what I heard, and I spent a little while on Engram today, uh, what I heard and what many of us heard growing up is that faith is primarily a personal thing. You know what I hardly ever hear or never heard growing up? Was that being a Christian is personal because it's about you, right? But it's not private. It's about a relationship with God, but it's also about a relationship that we share with every other Christian in the history of the world. 
It may even be more corporate than personal. Which is why I'm excited to share with y'all tonight, which is a great word for this whole sermon, y'all, some of the wisdom of God revealed in His redemptive plan through the church. So let's look at Romans chapter 12. It was read a little bit ago, but we're going to read stuff again because uh, it's probably more important to do this than hear me talk. Uh, (laughs) Romans 12, 4 through 5. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. I just realized I I can't actually preach and drink coffee at the same time, so that's a waste. Um, I'll microwave it. Um, We all belong to each other, and each of us needs all the others. That's how this finishes. This metaphor of the body, it's used quite a bit in the New Testament. Um, it, you can find it in, in, if you're taking notes or, or you, and you want to do homework, which I encourage you to do. Actually, one of the, the gateways into the church for me was hearing somebody preach out of Romans, and they challenged me to check them on it, and I started checking them on it, and I spent a month studying Romans, and it changed my life. But Romans chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, actually all of Ephesians, but Ephesians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians 12 really um, uh, hit home on this metaphor of the body. This gets used quite a bit for, 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 to talk about Christians in the New Testament. And the point of talking about Christians as the body is to stress that the body of Christ in this world is not one of us. You individually are not the body of Christ. It is all of us together, not even just in this room or on this earth right now, but all Christians throughout all time across the earth. Past and future. Every person of God who has ever lived and ever will live Together, corporately, is the singular body of Christ. And I can't help but hear Trinitarian echoes through this whole thing. And each one of us, when we are in Christ, is not just joined to him, but in him we get to be joined to one another. In Christ, I am united to with Abraham and Esther and the Blessed Mary and Martin Luther and Russell Wilson. Note to self, don't use that joke again. Uh, <laughs> That's a classic if you used to be involved in the house before uh, 2014. Anyway, the Apostle Paul in in Romans says uh, says it like this. We belong to one another. Or in another place, he says, we are members of one another. Or in still another place, he says, we are joined and held together. Are you starting to get the picture? We are called friends into life together. Together in Christ. We are parts of one body. We belong to one another and need each other. And each one of us has different work to do. There is no such thing as rogue or private Christianity. So connected are we that in his first letter to the Christians in Corinth, Paul says that when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. And when one part of the body is honored, we all rejoice. That's how interconnected we are. But nobody believes that. We don't believe this. How many of us believe that we are part of something so much greater like this, so integrally a part of one another that when one part suffers, we all suffer? Or when one part's honored, we all rejoice? We're coming out of a culture promoting something quite different. Our culture has celebrated the individual over and against the community. You do you and I'll do me. That's the ethic we celebrate, so private, so individualistic, that we flippantly talk as if what I do with my life doesn't affect anyone else. But our global 24-7 news cycle shows some cracks from time to time. I just bought a new smartphone, and for anybody in here who has an, an Apple, Samsung, or Sony smartphone, the pop ethics of our culture tell me 
that it's my right to buy whatever I want, okay? So no, nobody's going to get mad at me for buying an iPhone even if it costs $1,000. Nobody's going to say that to me. Not in this culture. What's it to you, right? It's my money, right? It didn't even occur to me when I bought it that it probably has the mineral cobalt in it. And it's likely that some of the cobalt came from the Republic of Congo where children died mining it so that I can have a pretty looking phone. But you do you and I'll do me. Or I just buy quinoa because I'm trying to get healthy. This is, this is not a true one, actually. Uh, but it works for this. Um, what does it matter to you if I buy quinoa? That's not hurting anybody, right? It's me, my body, my money, and the grocery store that I want to shop at, and I'm paying a fair price for it in, in our land. And it's worldview shattering for us to hear that communities who for centuries have lived off quinoa as a staple of their diet can no longer afford it. Because our desire for our health kicks has jacked up the price so high that they can no longer afford what they've been living off of for years. And so what's a health fad for me participates in upending the livelihood of some hundred-year-old tribe. And what's true of iPhones and quinoa is, oh, I'm going to get out of this because you guys are all like in a funk after me saying that, sorry. Uh, we're going to get out of it. What's true about iPhones and quinoa is also true about our faith. You can tweet that if you want. Uh, it's a weird line. Just occurred to me. Um, my faith, which comes to bear upon my ethics, my spending, my body, my time management, my hobbies, my voting, my family, what I do with my thoughts is so far from a private experience, friends. My faith impacts you, and so too yours impacts me. Your faith impacts my children who were sitting in the back earlier tonight. Maybe are they still there? I don't even know. I don't think they're there anymore. It's a good time for them to get out when I start talking about quinoa. Uh, <coughs> your faith impacts my children and will impact my children's children, friends. We are members of one another and we belong to one another. We are part of the same body. And there's a name for this body. You've all heard of it. It's called the church. Which comes from this Greek word ekklesia, which, which simply means the gathering or the assembly. It, it actually... For some of you who, who do some hipster word studies in Greek, uh, which that word, I need a new word because uh, we're starting to move out of that. Um, but uh, uh, it doesn't actually, it probably never meant to anybody in the first century the called out ones, if that's like your flavor. Um, there's a, we can argue about that later, but it, it literally is just a common non-religious word that meant the gathering of people. It's just a, an assembly of people. That's all it means. It wasn't a new word. It was street language for that group of people over there, the church over there. And we are simply the ones who are gathered together in and because of Jesus Christ. That's it. The fact that we are a church doesn't make us distinct. The fact that we are the church of Jesus Christ makes us distinct. In the first century, that's what that word would have meant. Church, and there's, and there's numbers of churches everywhere, gatherings of people everywhere, but that's the gathering of people that are gathered together because of Jesus. But this is what we're called we're just called the assembly or the gathering. That's what we're called. That's what, that's what church means. We're just called the gathering. It's not a place. The church is not a place. It's not a building. It's not a program. It's a people. One body, many parts. And to this body, to the people, to this church, God gives privileges and responsibilities in his world. He dwells with his church. He acts mightily within and through his church. He guards and preserves his church. He calls and equips his church to testify to the ends of the earth about the goodness of God, to teach people about Jesus, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
He calls and equips his church to make disciples of Jesus in all nations to care for the poor and the hungry in God's wisdom, friends. He has decided he will bring about his kingdom through his work in the church. That, friends, is his plan. His plan is a people, not a particular devotional, not a discipleship program, not a perfect liturgical worship service with your favorite songs. Not a super cool building. Those, truly, those all may be very helpful and even good in various ways, really. But they are not God's church. They're tools of God's church. His church, his gathering, the people that he has gathered together because of his son. All of God's people in all of the world throughout time, they are his plan. And that is good news for you and it's good news for the world. Here's why. Can you imagine if the full weight of all of God's purposes and plans fell upon your shoulders alone? Let's just take one thing, one thing. Are you carrying the testimony of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, friend, individually? Are you carrying the testimony of Christ to the ends? Would you even have the testimony of Christ if you weren't allowed to use other Christians? And and even if you are, let's say you are like, I am gung-ho, I'm only here to like prepare. It says, I am off, dude. Like I'm I'm, gonna scour the globe. You will die before you're done. And will that mean, will that mean that God has failed in his promises? Because his plan was for his testimony to go out to the ends of the earth. Of course not. Because you're not the church, friend. You're just a part of her. You belong to her. If you're not serving the poor in our city directly, has God's plan failed? No. Do you know that Christians all over the city give their time and their money and their other resources to help the poor already? Do you know, for example, that two alumni of this ministry, in fact, personally know each homeless person in this city and have an updated record of their needs and desires and are working to help the city better care for the homeless, and they were even doing that today. And now when you hear something like that, it's true, unlike the quinoa thing, when you hear something like that, if you are thinking out of an individualistic mindset— out of a private one which says that Christianity is just about you and God and nobody else, you might feel a sense of guilt for not doing what these two guys are doing. Right? They're serving the poor, but what about you? Because this faith is an individual thing, so maybe they got some points, but not you. And, and even if you have a, a very good understanding of faith and works, my suspicion is, is if you're living out of an individualistic, private mindset for your faith, it's hard to stomach other people's piety. But if you're thinking about the church as a body and you're just one part of it, you might recognize Paul's command to rejoice with the members of our body who are being honored. And so rather than heap on some self-focused, inappropriate guilt, we can instead say, thank you, God, for your faithfulness in those two men and for how they are carrying out the work of your church in which we belong. Amen. But how quickly we make everything about ourselves rather than about the work God is doing in the world at large. And so when I hear of somebody reading the scriptures, instead of rejoicing with them, I think about me. When I hear of somebody adopting children, instead of celebrating with them, I can only think about whether I too should adopt. If, if, if one of your friends is not here tonight, but usually comes to the house, and you leave and, and you say, actually, tonight was really great, I had a good time, it's very likely that your friend is going to make an excuse up for not being here, rather than say, I'm so glad you had a great time. Friends, there's a place 
There really is, and this is me pushing hard against something right now, okay? But there really is a place for conviction and accountability and learning from others to be sure. There really is that place in our faith. But we have so far to go in learning that nine times out of ten, when the scriptures say the word you, Y-O-U in English, it's actually saying y'all. We just don't, we lost that translation when we went from King James to modern English. We lost it, and so now you means you, but it also means you. And we don't know the difference without reading context, and it turns out we're pretty terrible at context. Because you don't read very well, which is a plug for a whole seminar on how to read the Bible coming up in a week. Okay, anyway, um, it's for you, plural, it's for y'all. The South is awesome. Uh, Anyway, um, that while singularly, you are not able to bear the weight of all God's called his people to. You, plural, have shoulders that are perfectly fit for the calling. Your individual role is to play a part in that. So, for example, not everyone in this room is called to full-time missionary sort of work in a foreign country. Care for the poor in Highland Park, adopt the fatherless and motherless, minister to the folks in middle management at TVA, work with victims of the sex trade, serve on staff with the college ministry, and make disciples, make disciples of Jesus in India like Thomas. <coughs> I guarantee that there isn't a single person in this room that's called to all those things. I guarantee it. But the church is. The church is called to all those things and way more. Her shoulders are broad because they are the shoulders of Christ. But when you forget that, when we buy into some idea that our Christianity is primarily between me and God, not us and God, me and God, And that we individually are the center of the universe and the center of the story. When that happens, then the weight of the whole thing falls upon us as individuals and it's crushing. And y'all have enough to be worried about in our culture. We don't pray enough. We don't read enough. We don't serve enough. We aren't gifted enough. Not because something is uniquely wrong with me, but because alone I'm not gifted enough. I don't pray enough. I don't read enough. I don't serve enough for all of God's purposes in the world to be accomplished. That's true. If the whole of God's plans and purposes fall upon my shoulders, what do I do? That's enough. The good news is I was never meant to. The church is. The church is, and God has promised to be with her to the end. You and I individually are called to faithful participation in the life of the church. The gathering, the people of God, the church on the world, friends, is doing amazing work. She is suffering tremendously for the sake of the gospel. The church around the world is doing enormous things for the poor and the orphans and the widows. I once served for two weeks at a leper colony in Thailand. I'm not there now, just so you know. And the only reason I was there in the first place is because some other couple dedicated their lives to these social outcasts and their grandchildren. And the reason they felt like they had to do it is because they were sent, these grandparents were sending their children to, 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 the, to Bangkok, Thailand, to sell their bodies so they could have some way to feed their grandchildren. And I suppose I could wallow in the fact that I'm not there and I'm here instead. God, forgive me for serving college students in Chattanooga when I should be serving those lepers at that little tiny place at about three hours north of Thailand. I don't even know the name of it. You know how many places there are like that? In the world, but I submit to you that, that that couple there, who I belong to and they belong to me, I submit to you that they can rest at ease and continue their work because I'm doing this work here. 
And the invitation for me is to say, thank you, God, for your faithful calling and equipping in the church to those people in that part of the world. What else would you have me do, God, since you seem to have that covered just fine? You see, the Spirit of God gifts us differently, friends. And the weight of all of this doesn't sit on any one of us. It's on the shoulders of the one we love, Jesus. And he says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And just try to take that seriously for once. All who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. You tell me you don't need some of that? For example, I'm about to make someone nervous in this room right now. Your pastors should be reading the Bible more than most of you in this room. But that also means, if they are being faithful, that most of you shouldn't read the Bible as much as your pastors. And I have yet to ask somebody in the South, hey, how you doing reading the Bible when they've said, pretty good. Every person I've asked has said, not enough, dude, not enough. Crushing guilt. But the reason why you shouldn't be reading the Bible as much as your pastors ought to be reading the Bible is because you'd be neglecting other work. Do you know in the early church, in the book of Acts, we're told that the disciples separated some men so that they could pray and study the scriptures in order to free up other men to not do that as much, to bring food to people, particularly widows, instead. Clearly saying, you guys, we need to serve the widows. Stop. Okay, we're going to set aside some men specifically to, to read and pray for everybody so that, so that some of us can go out and serve the widows because we shouldn't be neglecting the widows for the sake of this. That's actually the thrust of the argument in Acts chapter 6. I encourage you to check it out. What are you gifted and called to? I know, for example, that your pastors are not, I'm not called to your roommates and families as much as you are. I'm not called like you are to the industry in which you are hopefully being equipped in college. Brothers and sisters, let us stop acting like each one of us alone is the whole church. Whether that manifests as pride in some of us or shame in others, you and I are just a part of a huge, empowered, and equipped body. And one of the ways you can trust God, if you're ever wondering, there's all sorts of things that, that get way more practical than the way we normally talk about it. If you're wondering what it means to have faith in God, here's a good example of, of what it means to have faith in God. Trust that, that um, uh, trust in God by attending to how he has gifted you and trusting that he's really got everything else covered. He's just making room for you. And realizing this, maybe you'll begin to see that Christianity intrinsically means being a part of the church. Life together, because if you have caught the vision of what Christ is doing in the world and then you realize that you alone are not going to carry it out, then the way that you participate in it is to be a, a, a participant in the life of his church with other believers, other Christians, life together, belonging to one another. Trying to be a Christian all on your own is like playing tennis by yourself. I've never, I don't know, whatever. Okay, um, or, or trying to have kids without physical interaction. Use your imagination. The vision and work of the church like that requires that we share life together. Too many of us believe that true spirituality, that is like good Christians, really look like solitary quiet times and private Bible reading. And that stuff's great, y'all, but how good would it be, how much more fruitful would it be if we actually read the Bible with others? Particularly with those gifted by God to interpret it and teach out of it, because some of us shouldn't feel ashamed by that when, when we're specifically told in the very scriptures that some people are gifted to interpret and teach. Which means if you're sitting in a room and you're like, man, I don't get that out of this. You must have a gift of interpretation. You don't need to feel ashamed about that. 
You should go, I really need you to be in my group. I, I, a friend of mine, I actually was uh, talking about him a couple weeks ago. He's the guy that started like running, so he, or he started working out so he could run away from somebody. Remember that guy? Okay, um, so I got lots of stories about Kent. Uh, but uh, Kent also, one time I called him up um, because I'd, I had um, just finished reading my favorite book of all time, uh, which is East of Eden. And, um, and I had just finished reading that, and I called him up. I said, Kent, we got to meet for, to, to talk about books, dude. And he said, I'd love to. Why? And I said, because I, I read books all the time, and I get so much meaning out of them. Like, I learn so much. But I actually really struggle to just to recapitulate, to tell again the narrative. Like, I just lose track of the whole scope of things. So I can tell you what I learned about East of Eden, and it changed my life. But it would be hard for me to tell you what happened. And every time I've heard Kent tell me about a movie or a book, I'm like, dude, yes, that, yes, that's exactly what I saw. Thank you. And I was like, I just need your clarity. So can we meet together, and I'll just tell you what it meant to me, and you can tell me what happened. And you see that neither one of us, like he didn't need to sort of feel weirded out and ashamed that I was reaping so much meaning from this book because I could share with him what I had, right? And I didn't need to feel ashamed that I don't remember stories super well because I have Kent and Kent can bring that. What we need to do is just get together rather than separately feel so weird about this and like we need to be all things to all people on our own places individually without caring about other people. That sounds weird, right? I don't even know what I just said. That was fast. Um, Anyway. It's not, that, it's not that doing certain things alone is intrinsically bad, friends. Okay, there's so many, pri- private Bible reading and, 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 and prayer uh, alone, uh, these kinds of things are so good for us, but too many of us have been convinced that we should primarily live out our faith alone. And we're wondering why we aren't experiencing more abundant life from it. When you become a Christian, you become not just united with Christ, but united with his people. Jesus said, people will know that we are his disciples, not by our quiet times and our personal piety. He said, people will know that we are his disciples by our love for each other. And we must share life with each other if we're going to love each other, right? This is a family thing. Friends, this isn't just a problem individually either. As gatherings of Christians, as local churches even, I think we also too, if you're in, and I encourage you to more increasingly throughout college become involved in the life of a local church outside of a college ministry too, right? Uh, we'll get to that in just a second. Um, but, but local churches too need to remember that we are part of something so much bigger and realize that we just play a small part. There is no local church, even though it might be called to be a small picture of the whole, there is no local church that will ever do the work of the universal Big C Church. None. There are churches in this town that have different gifts than other churches in this town, and we need to stop shaming them for being one part of the body and not the other. The reality of all of this is just rising in my heart so much right now because we've got two weeks left. Like this week and next week is it for the house for the semester. And I'm thinking about summer coming on for so many of you and how many of you live lives that are pretty alone over the summer. And you try to figure out so many things by yourself or for you graduates, thinking about what your faith looks like after college. Friends, do not go at this alone. You are not meant to flourish in isolation. It is not good for us to be alone from the opening pages of the scripture. God himself is not alone. You need to praise God with other Christians, be taught from the Bible with other Christians, share your life and your belongings with other Christians, eat with other Christians, and remember what Christ has done for you together with others in his body. Let me drive home the point, and we'll we'll close it out here, uh, by looking at uh, Jesus' prayer in John 17, which we read earlier. Did I give you that passage, Ashley, from John 17? If not, I'm just going to read it. Um, John 17, uh, I think verses 20 through 23. Um, I am praying not only for these disciples, he's talking about the friends around him, Jesus is praying in this moment, and we get to be like a fly on the wall. 
He says, I'm not only praying for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me because of their testimony. And my prayer for all of them is that they will be one just as you and I are one, Father. That just as you are in me and I am in you, so they will be in us and the world will believe you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, all being perfected into one. Then the world will know that you sent me and will understand that you love them as much as you love me. I confess to you that this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It strikes me so powerfully that it shakes, literally shakes the foundations of my belief. It's mysterious and wonderful, and, and I'll talk to you about it as much as you'll let me. But, but for tonight, um, I just want you to notice one thing. Jesus says here, if we got it, okay, good, this last part's really great. Okay, um, just keep that up just for a second. Um, Jesus says here that the world will know that the Father sent him. Think evangelism. The world will know that the Father sent him and will understand that God loves them by what? How is it, according to Jesus, that the world will know that God loves them? By the church being perfected in their unity. By the unified life and work of the church. By our life together, friends. By our unity in Christ. Our collective unity in Christ. Not only is our life together in the body of Christ good news for us because it takes the enormous pressure off and invites us to participation with each other in Christ, but it's good news for the world. This is how their world's going to know that God loves them and that He sent His Son. But the way in which we are united in Christ, together. This is the best evangelism you could do is to actually think about your life with other Christians. If you've been living life alone or trying to go at your faith alone, come out, come out from wherever you are. Our staff and student leaders would love to help connect you with other Christians here in the house or with a local church in the city. If you're graduating and you want to talk about finding a local church or what it looks like to share in the life of a local church, your mid-20s are really hard for local church participation. I would love to help you with that, though. I want to close by telling you the first time I remember thinking about any of this stuff. I had a wreck one day. I was 19 years old. I had an absolute wreck. I was furious and hurt, and I felt super alone. And a mentor of mine, and thank God I pursued mentoring relationships with older men when I started following Jesus. This mentor of mine said, hey, man, do you want to pray? And you know what I said? By the grace of God, I said no. By the grace of God, I said no. It was almost 20 years ago, and I still remember that feeling. Feeling like I was nervous and scared, like I'd done something wrong. But I took a chance, and I was honest. I didn't want to pray. And by the grace of God, he said, thank you for your honesty, brother. Would it be okay if I prayed for you? And friends, that blew up my categories. Here, my friend's faith carried me. Reminds me of that time when, when, when uh, four friends uh, took a paralyzed man and brought him to the feet of Jesus. And three gospel accounts tell us that Jesus saw their faith and healed him. That's what I, I think I felt something like that that day. What if this whole thing is bigger than me, God? If God's church is faithful to pray through my friend, even when I am faithless, is it possible that God is always faithful in his church even when I am faithless? What if he is ever and always at work before me and behind me 
and within me and above me and beside me? And what if discovering this primarily happens not in the solitary uh, sort of confinement of my room with the door closed, but what if it primarily happens? What if I primarily discover the faithfulness of God and His work alive in the world as I share my life together with His church? Where two or more are gathered, friends. God's wisdom and love and offer of life are on display through His church, friends, through His people gathered together, and let us not forsake the gathering together of believers, not now, not ever, on into eternity. Would you pray with me as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you help us to know the manifold ways that you've invited us into relationship with ourself, with you, with each other, with the world. And the ways in which we are united, God, are, are, are phenomenal. When we come before you and before each other as sinners, in thought, word, and deed, by things we've done and left undone, and, and your Son offers his life for us, forgiving us, leveling the playing field, blessing us with, with his life and righteousness, and inviting us in, into, into united life together where there is no slave or free or, or, or Greek or Jew or male or female. He, he takes our categories. Your son is amazing, Father, and we thank you for him. Would you prepare our hearts now um, for the ministry that you have to offer us um, through the communion table. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.